Well, good morning, church. It is great to worship our risen Savior with you. And Brother Ken Bandy, it is great to see you, to have you with us once again. Well, for the last several weeks, we have been on the road to the resurrection as a church, considering Christ's surrender to His Father's will at Gethsemane and His suffering on the road to Calvary and the sacrifice He made on the cross for us and the sacrifice of the Father as the Father sent His Son for our sake to give Himself for us so that we might become the very righteousness of God through faith. And so today is the day in which we are gathered together to savor the resurrection, the glory of the resurrection. So give it to me one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right. Well, that sounds like savoring. But let's talk about that. What does it mean to actually savor something? Well, maybe you have been without a really good meal for some time, maybe off in college and you're missing your mama's cooking. Maybe you've been off in deployment and you've been missing a home-cooked meal. Maybe you've been on a backpacking trip where you're out there on the trail and it's funny, we get out there, we, we, we dream of like getting out there in the mountains and then honestly after about four hours of backpacking, you start dreaming about food. And by day two or day three, that's kind of all you're talking about is, is food. You know, you're talking about restaurants that you would normally just drive right past without a thought, right? And then you get the victory dinner when you finally get to the end of the trail and you savor that steak. Now, you know, my, my son Tim is a great example to me of savoring food. He, he has developed a, a, a culinary taste for fried chicken, okay? So a couple, a couple months ago, uh, he and I stopped by Danny's, and he had never been to Danny's before, I don't think. And so we sat out there by the bayou and ate Danny's fried chicken. And I was thinking about, you know, my cholesterol levels. Tim was savoring with every bite. He kept talking about how wonderful this experience was of eating Danny's fried chicken. Well, we savor in the moment things that are beautiful to us. And we talk about it don't we? My observation around the world has been that people who often live harder lives tend to really savor the beautiful even, even more, maybe, than we've had it easy. Well, the disciples of Jesus savored the glory of his resurrection so much that they would actually come to boldly proclaim it to hostile crowds and even be willing to die for its truth. Consider the words of Peter as he boldly addressed a crowd of his own people. Peter, the fisherman from the backwater of Nazareth, before a crowd of, of people, including many more sophisticated and educated and powerful than himself, in Jerusalem at Pentecost, said this in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter learned to savor the glory of the resurrection. I'm going to say hi to you back here, by the way. I'm trying to get dizzy, like doing circles, but I will do my best to not forget you, choir. Thank you all for ministering to us this morning, uh, including being willing to sit back here so that we'd have plenty of room for everyone else to, to sit. Well, it took Peter a little while, and it took the disciples a little while to get there to savor the resurrection. They didn't actually savor it like we might think right away. And, and we'll see from the three stories that we're going to look at here in Luke chapter 24 that as we read along this morning, all of these disciples, sadly, were slow to savor the resurrection. And, and let me encourage you or invite you, um, inside your, your bulletin, there's a worship guide. This will help you a little bit. I don't have every verse that we're going to look at printed out because we're going to read through Luke 24, but I've got some of the uh, salient verses that we're going to focus on as well as some of the other cross-references in there for your reference. But feel free, um, if you would, if you haven't already turned there, just open Luke 24 up. Keep your thumb there. We'll look at a couple other places, but we're going to just walk through these three stories um, of, of the resurrected Christ. And so the very first story is of several women and of two angels who savored the announcement of the risen Christ. And as we read the story that Pastor Billy already read to us, once again, I want you to think about it a little bit from the angel's perspective. Okay, I mean, what? Out of all the angels and all the, I don't know how many missions they had been sent on by God to announce things, man, this was it. This was the mission, right? To be able to announce to the very first disciples, these women, who by the way had faithfully stood with Jesus at the cross in a time when most of the other disciples had fled, right? They fled when he was arrested. Some of them kind of crept up in the crowd and kind of mingled into the crowd and blended in and, and, and went to the cross. But these women had never abandoned Jesus, okay? They were the ones that God chose for his angels to first reveal the message to. And so think about, I mean, I think about maybe a smile on these angels face this this anticipation this joy of being able to announce that Christ is risen to these faithful disciples so on the on the first day of the week verse 1 again at early dawn they went to the tomb these women taking the spices that they had prepared they had rested on the sabbath so early morning sunday morning and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb but that when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Same, same words in Greek for that described Christ and his apparel at the transfiguration. And as they were frightened and bowed their heads to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, Pastor Kent Hughes wrote this. All resurrection-denying churches look for Jesus among the dead. They love the example of the dead Jesus. They preach his courage, his conviction, even his faith. 
sentimentally, sentimentality fills their sermons with language about recurrent spring making hope eternal, about a butterfly discarding its chrysalis. But the R resurrection word is never used except metaphorically. I don't know if you've ever been to a church service where the pastor did not really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I have. I remember on an Easter Sunday visiting in another state uh, with my parents on vacation, and we, we went to a church, and really not knowing a whole lot about it. Uh, and and about, about halfway through the sermon, I realized this pastor doesn't believe that if you could get in a time machine and go back 2,000 years and hide behind a rock, he does not believe that you would see Jesus emerge from the tomb. And it was just all sentimentality. And it was rubbish, as the British would say. It was a rubbish sermon. Well, Paul says that if we don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, he, he uses stronger words. We're losers. Stop wasting our time. You have better things to do. We have better things to do. I mean, we could be at the beach or out in a boat or something, right? Why waste your time being religious if you don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You're just wasting your time believing. You might as well just live a carpe diem life and seize it all because that's it. Now, can you imagine the hopelessness of that worldview, right? You, you live a life, maybe you accomplish some things, maybe you love people, you know, and, 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 and then you die and your consciousness ends forever. That's it. Your, your body decomposes in the ground and your soul that you carry with you through life isn't even really real. It's just a combination of chemicals, functional chemicals. That's it. And in 100 years, maybe 150, if you've got some great, great grandkids or into genealogies, after that, you're lost forever. No one's going to even know you ever walked the face of the earth. That's the worldview you get of naturalism. That's it. It's the end of you. And so Paul says, if in Christ... We, he's talking about Christians, have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. We are the biggest losers with an L stamped on our forehead because we wasted a good bit of our life being religious. We should have been out there being hedonists, just getting all we can. But in fact, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the angels told the women in verse 6, back to Luke 24, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Well, you might wonder, well, when did Jesus actually say that to the disciples? Because they were pretty clueless, right? Well, same gospel Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus had said to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. Doesn't get more clear than that. Then later in Luke chapter 18, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus had prophesied it. He had spoken it clearly. He had warned them, tried to prepare them, their hearts. But we as human beings have a tendency to not hear what we don't want to hear sometimes, right? Well, maybe he's being metaphorical. Uh, Maybe they did not really want to hear it. But now these women remembered his words. Verse 8. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. The women believed But sadly, these men were chauvinists, and they were depressed. They were discouraged. Most of them had fled when their Savior had needed them most as his followers to stand with him. They had cut and run, and we learn in another gospel, now that they're kind of locked away for fear of the Jews, hiding, discouraged. And so in their state of depression, they they choose to not believe these women. And their chauvinism comes out. They did not think these women were trustworthy witnesses. Even though it was a group of them who had seen angels. But Peter, verse 12, rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen claws by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, it's important to understand here that Peter still didn't believe the word of the angels that the women had brought that the word here for marveling, it's not a, he's not glorifying the Lord. He you don't just go home if that's the case, okay? He's perplexed. That's what the word here means, marveled. He's perplexed. Who, why isn't Jesus' body there? Who, who could possibly roll this stone away? Who would have stolen the body of Jesus? How? Why? And how would they, and why would they unwrap him from that, that shroud These valuable linen cloths. Why would they go to all the work to unwrap them and leave the cloths behind? It made no no sense to him. And we think, come on, Peter. Why so dense? But are we not sometimes slow ourselves to change perspective? Do do, Do we get set in our ways and have a hard time adjusting to new truths that God may reveal to us? Especially when we're looking down instead of looking up. Well, let's look at the next story. Two hearts that savored the presence of the risen Christ, starting in verse 13, on this road to Emmaus. Now, these hearts of these disciples actually savored Christ's presence before their heads did, as we'll see here. You get the idea as we read these these verses, that they're walking slowly. It says that they're sad. So if they, if they believed that Jesus was truly risen, they wouldn't be sad, but they were downcast, depressed. So as we read the story, I want you to notice that the empty tomb that they had heard about 
was actually bad news to them in their perspective until Jesus opened their eyes. So look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other all these, about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing it together, Jesus himself drew near and wept with them. And what, he didn't, I'm sorry, and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, for all of, of recorded history, um, here poor Cleopas has this very embarrassing uh, statement recorded, right? Um, some people, by the way, think that this may have actually been Jesus' uncle, okay? We read in John, it's kind of a side note here, but we read in John about Mary, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So interestingly enough, um, Mary had a sister named Mary. I don't know how many parents do that, but evidently hers did. Talk about confusion. But so she had a sister named Mary who was married to a guy named Clopas, okay? And her sister was with her at the cross. We get that in John. So some think that this was actually Clopas, here in, in the Greek, it's Cleopas, as we transliterate it, but, but it could be, might be not, but this might actually have been a disciple of Jesus who's actually his uncle, maybe traveling with his wife, Jesus' aunt, maybe, okay, Down, downcast, leaving the city on their way to their lodging in Emmaus. But here, Cleopas here not only did not recognize Jesus, but he just accused Jesus of being clueless right? No one knew better what happened these last few days than Jesus Christ who experienced all of it. But Jesus plays along with them here. And you can almost sense here that, that he is savoring the future moment where their eyes will be opened and that they will recognize him, right? He's, he's like savoring this moment, like waiting. You know, maybe you've been in that situation where you just can't wait for that aha moment, for, for people to realize the truth. And so Jesus says to them in verse 19, what things? Plays along as if he doesn't know. And they said to him, considering Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God, and all the people. Verse 20, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these, these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Remember, they were sad. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Verse 25. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them 
in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Imagine that, walking that road to Emmaus, still blind to the identity of Jesus, getting the greatest sermon, right? An unpacking, an exposition of the Old Testament. You've, you've heard me say, you've heard other preachers say that all of the Scripture points to Christ, right? All the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. And when you read the New Testament, it points back to Him. You get to Revelation, and here we see the, the Lamb, the victorious, risen Lamb. And, and you see Him coming in power. Jesus stands at the very center of the Scriptures according to Jesus. I didn't make that up. That's not just me and other preachers and scholars kind of looking back and, and kind of, you know, in their own way, um, kind of sticking Jesus there, you know, eisegeting into the text Jesus. No, Jesus himself here says that all the scriptures points to him. So maybe as they're walking on this dusty road, maybe Jesus took them back to Genesis 22, the story of Abraham offering Isaac and how God provided that ram and how that pointed to him, the substitutionary atonement. Or maybe Jesus reminded them of the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12. And how that blood of that lamb on the doorpost would have pointed to the lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. Perhaps Jesus showed them how the entire sacrificial system of the Mosaic law pointed to the coming atonement of Christ. The writer of Hebrews put it um, better than I could. Of course, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Perhaps Jesus pointed to Isaiah 53, that graphic prophecy that described his scourging and his crucifixion for our sins, for our place. How David had uttered hundreds of years before in Psalm 22:1, Jesus' heart cried to God the Father as he bore God's wrath against our sin on the tree. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How the minor prophet Hosea had prophesied of his resurrection on the third day. In Hosea chapter 6 verse 2, in which he wrote, After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Pastor Thabiti Anabuel wrote, Our faith should be rooted in the Bible. We believe these things because the Bible predicted them and they were fulfilled in history. God will not let the message that saves the world rest on human experience and oral testimony. He wrote it down so that we could pass it on from generation to generation. Christianity is God saying to all the world, I told you so. I told you I would deliver you and I did it just like I said. We would think by now that that Cleopas and his companion would recognize that they were walking with the resurrected Jesus. But somehow they did not. Not yet. Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. 
And he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So we see Palestinian hospitality at work, of course. Uh, Probably a longing to hear more, right? Keep unpacking, keep talking. Their hearts are burning, right? Even though their eyes are still closed. Their heads aren't working quite right yet. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Now, some folks think that possibly as Jesus was breaking the bread for the first time, they actually noticed the the holes from the nails in his hands and wrists. That's possible. Again, when someone is, if you've been with people who are really downcast, or maybe that's been you, you've been really depressed, sometimes your powers of observation are skewed because you're looking down and you really got that tunnel vision, right? It's hard to, you don't have much peripheral vision. Others think that perhaps it was just simply recognizing the way he broke bread. I mean, think about all the times he broke bread. It's like Jesus' signature of self-disclosure, breaking bread that, of course, pointed to his work on the cross where his body was broken for us. Well, they said to each other in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, okay, so by now the disciples back in Jerusalem had come to realize that indeed Jesus had risen because Jesus had at some point after this self-disclosure to, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, at some point Jesus had actually appeared to Peter, okay? And so Peter had now announced to everyone and finally people are starting to realize and starting to believe he is risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon, they say. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And they they savored it. Savoring leads to sharing. They didn't just say, well, that was awesome, and continue their meal in Emmaus. No, they hightailed it back seven miles to Jerusalem in the dark, right? Um, uh, On a dangerous path. He didn't really travel after dark. They hightailed it back because they had some news to share that he was risen. He is risen indeed. So let's look now at our third and final story, verse 36 through 49, of a room full of disciples who savored the revelation of the risen Christ. Jesus revealed himself to them in spectacular fashion. Now, the truth is, they still did not savor him fully immediately. Jesus had to work with them, helping them move from shock to joy and belief. So look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Shalom. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been in a room or doing something and maybe you had tunnel vision and you didn't realize someone was standing right there and then they say something like, hello there. And your response is, ah, you know, my wife did that to me a couple weeks ago. There she is. 
it, Sam, I mean, I, I must have really been thinking about something because I think it was outside. She was right there. I didn't see her. And suddenly I see movement and I just jumped. You know, I just jumped and reacted and, you know, 100 pounds soaking wet. I was terrified. <laughs> well, that's what we see here in spectacular fashion. Jesus, I'm sure he, you know, he appears. I mean, he walks through the, walks through the wall or through the closed door, and he, and he shows up, and he counts his words, he considers his words, and so he says, peace to you. And of course, they, they all freak out for a little while. Now, I think there's something deeper going on here than Jesus just trying to calm them down from their initial shock. Remember, these men had betrayed him. They had been cowards. They had said, I will go to my death for you, and they had cut and run. Peter had denied him three times. So Jesus, with his choice of words, he says, peace to you, right? He's, he's showing them God's grace and forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed by a close friend. Not an easy thing to forgive. J.C. Ryle made this observation about this very point. He wrote, it is far more, he, that's Jesus, is far more willing to forgive than men are to be forgiven, and far more ready to pardon than men are to be pardoned. Free, full, and undeserved forgiveness to the very uttermost is not the manner of men, but it is the manner of Christ. So he says, peace to you. Then he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Ego a me atos. It's I myself. It's me. It's not some, I'm not a phantom or a spirit. I am the human, the resurrected human Jesus Christ. The God-man. Then he says, check out my battle wounds. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Again, it takes human beings a while sometimes to process things. And and to change their disposition. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of boiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Now if you think about it, Jesus hadn't eaten for three days. Now don't think about that too long. It might make your head hurt. But here's the point. He was really human. Okay? The resurrected human Jesus. A Human body, but superhuman. Remember, he had walked through the wall. He could appear and disappear. I mean, we're talking about interdimensional travel here. Some incredible capabilities that he has as a true resurrected human. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ 
should suffer on the thir- on, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Well, here's the bottom line, brothers and sisters. The resurrection is really good news. Boy, I hope it's good news for your hearts today. So here's maybe the application question for us. Do we savor the glory of the resurrection? Do we savor it? And and what does that mean? You know, I fear sometimes that our comfort may cause us to give into a culture of complacency. And a culture of, frankly, unbelief, where we are slow to savor the glory of the resurrection, where we're tempted to savor much lesser things that don't last. So what does it mean to savor the glory of the resurrection in your daily life? Well, several things, and and I think you could probably think of more. But first of all, savoring the glory of the resurrection means that you really believe it. It really, truly happened. We we sometimes throw in that word bodily, sadly, just because of of the losers out there that want to deny the reality, right? And we'll just try to come up with some kind of spiritual resurrection. We have to say bodily resurrection to make it clear that we mean it really happened. Okay, as Francis Schaeffer would say, true truth. Really sad that we have to add adjectives like that. But... The bodily resurrection that Jesus really did come back. If you had a video camera and a time machine, you would see it happen in this life experience. He really came back. And Christianity rises or falls on the historic truth of the resurrection. So the climax of the story of Jesus, that would be the resurrection, is the foundation for our lives. You remove that, you remove the truth of that, and we have nothing. I mean, it's a Our house is built on sand, and frankly, we are wasting our time. But he did rise, and so we believe it. And and that means that we should think about it. As you read the Bible, the the more of the Bible that you read, the more you're going to see all kinds of prophecies coming to light. You'll see God's faithfulness in history, and, and you'll even better be tuned in to be able to see his faithfulness in your own life experience. So savoring the the glory of the resurrection means believing it and thinking about it and, and reading the Bible and, and, and delighting in that. And then also sharing it because we talk about what we savor, do we not? I mean, if you savor something, it's like you got to tell somebody about it. The women who encountered the angels at Jesus' empty grave, they rushed to tell the disciples. Cleopas and his companion hightailed it back seven miles to Jerusalem. To tell the disciples. And Jesus commissioned us to take it to the nations. To tell the world. To make sure that all people know that he has defeated death and risen from the dead. And that he will defeat death in their life if they will trust in him. So Jesus commissioned us to take this message of the gospel. Of the resurrection to the nations. But maybe we need to start in our kitchen. And around our dining room table. Today, many of you are going to savor a good meal. I think that's part of the plan, probably for many of you. 
Maybe you've already had it, but most likely you're going to go home and savor a good meal, and maybe you're looking forward to that right now. Maybe you're hoping that I'm reaching the conclusion so that you can hurry up and go savor your meal. Well, here's what I want to challenge you to do, because for some crazy reason, and I think I might have already mentioned it, we've given in to our naturalistic, materialistic culture where we compartmentalize and say, well, church is a place to talk about this, and around the table, in our daily lives, we talk about lesser things. So let me encourage you today to, to break that bad habit that maybe you're in, okay? Uh, it should be normal dinnertime conversation, right, for us. Today, go home, and I challenge you to savor the resurrection of Jesus around your table. So go around the table and share one reason why you are thankful that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Or maybe talk about how the resurrection of Jesus will change your life this week, how you would live this week, as opposed to how maybe you lived last week, or maybe how you would live if you didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Talk about these things together. You see, the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope. Maybe you're in a loveless marriage. Well, because Christ rose from the dead, you are inhabited by the Holy Spirit if you are a Christian. So that means that the Holy Spirit can empower you to love and to forgive those who betray and deeply wound, just like Christ forgave his disciples. So there's actually hope for your marriage if you really believe the resurrection. Maybe you are struggling with depression. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Christians have a spiritual life that is a relationship with God. So God doesn't look at us and see the dirtiness of our sin anymore, even though we deserve that, but he doesn't if we're in Christ, if you've trusted in him. If you've trusted in him, he has forgiven you and made your heart clean. That means you don't have to walk around downcast. You can look up, and you can delight in God. So if you're struggling with depression, believe the gospel again, and look to your risen Savior for hope. Well, maybe you're struggling with pain. You're hurting physically. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're even at a point where you're staring death in the face, and you're just aware of that coming mortality, of your mortality, and, and maybe you're just, in a, you're recognizing that your body is declining, and, and that is discouraging. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we Christians understand that whatever suffering we face in this lifetime, it is temporary. The, the very moment after death, we know that we will see him because we've been saved from our sins. So eternal life awaits. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul wrote, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if that's you, if you are struggling with a relationship, if you're struggling with, with pain or just emotional stress and despondency, depression. Put your mind today on Christ and savor the resurrection 
Look forward to it because you know what the Bible teaches? In the end of 1 Corinthians 15, we too shall rise. In fact, Paul talks about our spiritual resurrection bodies at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, comparing our physical bodies in this life to that of our ancestor Adam. The, the, the man of clay made from the dirt, made from the earth. But he compares our future resurrected body to that of the glorified body of the risen Christ, a body that is marked by power, glory, and immortality. No more pain and some other amazing things. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, Paul draws a line from the resurrected Christ and the truth of the actual historical bodily resurrection of Jesus to the future bodies that we shall have that are A, recognizable, okay, uh, that B, are capable of interdimensional travel. I am really excited and intrigued by that, if you haven't figured that out already. And are able to eat, enjoy meals, that is cool. End of 1 Corinthians, we read, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of our risen Savior. Lord, help us today to savor the glory of his resurrection. I pray for any friend in this room who maybe does not truly know you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that, that they would believe with simple childlike faith that Jesus died for their sins and truly rose from the dead and is alive. And Lord, I pray for my friend in this room, maybe who has been walking with you uh, for decades, but maybe her heart has just grown tired and, and cold. And maybe she doesn't savor anything. Lord, I, I pray that today you would wake up her heart with the truth of the resurrection, that she would savor you. And I pray this in the name of our Lord, Savior, and Hero, Jesus Christ. Amen.